You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, and it's Sarah. So this week we are going to talk about the case of the boy in the box. Um, we do have another trigger warning here for this case. Apparently all of the cases I've been doing lately are these horrible deaths of children. So sorry, um, but a bunch of people requested this one, so that's why it's on our list here. Um, this episode will cover the case of the boy in the box, and it does, like I said, involve a child. Um, as I did with the Babes in the Woods case, I will do my best to remain delicate with the information and not focus on the gruesome elements. However, some of the details that we will go through are necessary to disclose in order to hopefully bring a resolution to this case. So... Um, this is just kind of that warning that there is some less than fantastic information about this child that you will hear in this episode. So in February of 1957, the body of a young boy was found near Philadelphia in Fox Chase. Now, there are a few different versions of exactly how this happened. Uh, what we know for sure is that this young boy was found in a J.C. Penney bassinet box in the woods. Uh, we do know that a young man by the name of Frederick Benoit discovered the boy and actually ignored it at first, writing it off as a doll or a mannequin. And y'all, it is never a mannequin. Every single story where someone thinks they see a mannequin, it's never a mannequin. Never. Maybe he just saw the box and didn't want to get close enough and just figured, oh, someone threw out a doll because it was in a crib. So like baby doll crib kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, I can totally see where that may have been the case. I just, I feel like it's, it's never a mannequin. We always think it's a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. Um, now, uh, Frederick woke up the next morning on the 25th of February to call and report the body to police after hearing that a young child was missing from New Jersey. Um, it was later determined that this was not the missing child, but the young man also admitted that he initially did not call the police because he was actually spying on a local girls' school. Um, so that's not great. Um, I kind of had the thought of, you know, do these two things cancel out? Like you were spying on these girls, but then you ended up finding something that police needed to know about. Um, yeah, it's still not a good thing, but I guess it is good that he ended up finding it and calling it in. Still not great that he was there to spy on a girl's school. So he didn't call it in because he was a voyeur. That's, that's great. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Question, though, couldn't he have called just, like, anonymously? I mean, it was the 50s. I'm sure he could have figured it out. There wasn't caller ID. I mean, his idea of a fun time was standing in the woods staring at a school, so I don't know that he was necessarily thinking clearly. Um, but, I mean, at least he eventually told the truth. That's true. So, I mean, he fessed up to it. Um but yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I am glad that he did end up calling it in though. Um, now there is at least one more story of another young male who supposedly found this box with the body in it first, but he didn't report it because he was checking his own illegal traps in the area when he discovered it. And he didn't want to incur any repercussions from the illegal traps that he had set. So everybody in this case is shady. Just saying. Like, what What the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, apparently, the area where this was, where the box was found, is an area that a lot of people would set, like, fur traps that were illegal, but they would set them there anyway. Um, it was just, like, a strip of grass near woods along a road. It wasn't really any personal property. It, so, apparently, it wasn't uncommon for these things to happen, but... Um, yeah, it's, it's got a nice shady start to it. Um, 
Now, the boy in the box was found completely naked, and it appeared as if his hair had recently been cut, as it appeared to have been shaved haphazardly and very sloppily, according to some reports. Other reports did claim that it was neatly cut, so I'm I'm not really sure what claims to believe. It does seem like more sources are saying that it was haphazardly cut, though. Um, there were also apparently chunks of hair attached to the body. And from what I understand, it was chunks of hair in the sense of what you would see when somebody gets their head shaved. Um, those little bits of hair kind of stick to you until you can shower and get them all off and scrub off the hair and whatever. Now, I wonder if they did this to hide the identification. Maybe he had fairly distinguishable hair. So, yeah, this actually comes up in a couple different theories that we're going to talk about. And one of the theories does come back to the fact that the hair would have been very identifiable. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it's it's definitely possible. Um Unfortunately, there was no immediate identification of this boy, but investigators were able to start getting a description of their victim pretty quickly. Um, and due to how he was discovered, he has come to be known, of course, as we are referring to him, uh, the boy in the box, but also later took on the moniker America's Unknown Child. I'm assuming the box was opened and the body could be easily seen from a decent distance, since I doubt these weirdos would have gone over and opened a bassinet box, but who knows, I guess, because they're weirdos. But my point is that whoever left him there didn't go to much trouble to hide him. So I'm actually not sure, um, because of course, by the time that investigators got there, the box itself was open and the stories are kind of shady. Um... But from at least a couple of the sources that I read and some of the videos that I watched, it seemed like the box was closed. Um, I don't know if it was sitting in a weird position that drew attention to it or um, we'll find out later. There were some other items in the box and nearby the box. So I don't know if maybe that led to some of the curiosity, um, or even just, you know, if you think it's just a box and maybe you try to walk by it and it, you know, kind of snags your leg or I'm not really sure. Um, it was never, you know, really given whether they had to open the box and see it or whether it was like the flaps were folded down or something and they just happened to look in and okay. see it. Um, now, like I said, despite the body being found naked, there were some items found near the boy and those items were taken into evidence. Um, one is an inexpensive fleece blanket that he was wrapped in and it was actually traced to a manufacturer, but the manufacturer had different, um, factories in North Carolina and Quebec. And the trail just kind of stops there. Uh, the manufacturing plants were shipping out all across the country, all across Canada and the United States with multiple stores accepting these. And because there was never a receipt, they couldn't trace the blanket to a specific store that it would have been purchased at or anything like that. Um, I think it's kind of like, you know, I've gotten blankets from like the Target dollar bin and, you know, there's a thousand targets. So, you know, you wouldn't be able to trace it to the specific target. Um, some other items that were found were included. Sorry. Some other items that were found included a handkerchief with a G monogrammed on it. There was also a scarf and possibly a men's jacket. Um, a couple of the sources said there was a men's jacket. Others didn't mention it. So I'm not entirely sure. Um, there also definitely was a custom hat that was collected from that area. Now, the only place I could find any specific details on the hat was in a BuzzFeed Unsolved episode. And side note that I love BuzzFeed Unsolved. But note that if you do decide to watch it, if you want to dig a little bit deeper, see some of their research, um, a lot of 
the show and a lot of the harshness is handled with comedy. So they tend to just, you know, make jokes again, of course, never at the expense of the victim, but they do tend to make jokes. If that's not your style, you're not going to want to watch that. Um, but there was a lot of, that's how I deal with my trauma. So I mean, same, (laughs) but that's also why we love my favorite murder. So, um, they do have a lot of good information on that show. And I did get a decent amount of information from there, or at least it was kind of confirmed there from other sources as well. Um, in this episode, they explained that the hat was about 15 feet away from the box. It was a collegiate style corduroy cap that was blue in color, and it's a size seven and one eighth. It had a label in it from the Eagle Hat and Cap Company, and it was made by Mrs. Hannah Robbins in Southern Philadelphia. Um, they did actually go and talk to her and she remembered the man who bought the hat. She described him as being blonde and aged somewhere from 26 to 30. He did request that a leather strap and buckle be added to the hat, which is why he stood out so much to her. Um, and then he paid in cash and she never saw him again, but really, I mean, working in retail previously, if someone comes in and There might be something a little bit unique about them, but it's not earth shattering. They may never come back in. You know, they, you may never come across them again. So it's not totally abnormal. Um, It is important to note here that these items could just be a coincidence because there was a lot of different trash found in that area. And like I said before, it was just kind of this area of grass where, a bunch of random things were. So they might be related and they might not. Do you know if authorities ever try to track the hat guy down? Cause they seem to have gone to pretty great lengths to figure out where it came from. Do you know if they continued that? I mean, I know she gave a very vague description, but. Um, I'm not sure. And I want to say, and I would have to go back into some of the sources to confirm. I think they did attempt to track him down, but I mean, you're looking for a blonde dude between 26 and 30. And the only other distinguishing thing we know about him is this hat, but the hat was found, you know, near the box. So it's not like we can even, you know, try to find a guy with that. All you do is you go ask every blonde guy in his twenties, if he's lost his hat recently, simple. Yeah, was, I mean, that would take like five minutes, you know. How old was the the creeper in the woods? I mean, was he blonde and in that age frame? Did he maybe get hot and bothered no. and take his clothes off? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, no, I believe he was 17. Um, so he was late teen, maybe early 20. 17 is sticking in my brain. So I'm thinking he was. But, I mean, if someone's describing, you know, depending on how you dress or what you look like, you can look a different age. That's true. Me with makeup Um, and me without two different people. I mean, you know, I'm, I look 15, so (laughs) I fully understand not looking your age. Um, I have a feeling, I think they, you know, fully questioned and interviewed this Frederick that found it. Um, so I think if they had any suspicion that he was connected, they would have talked to him again because, you know, he was easily accessible for them. Um, as far as I know, they were two different people. It seems like they were pretty thorough from the get go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now when they were looking over him, they noticed that he had light brown hair, he had blue eyes, and he was also found to be covered with bruises and scars across his body, which they felt indicated abuse. Um, and then they also noticed, of course, this recently shaved head. I can't even imagine who could do something like this to a child. Like it just blows my mind. And then on top of it, like, why would you shave their head? Oh, just wait till we hit the theories. They are uh, stomach churning. It's it's rough. Um, I'm with you 100% on that. Um, now, like I mentioned earlier, the recently shaved head does come into play later on with two of the theories. So just kind of hold on to that. Um, 
looking at the scars, two of his scars were surgical scars. Uh, they were found on his groin and his left ankle. And he also had an L shaped scar under his chin. Um, he was found to be severely malnourished and was eventually determined to be somewhere between the ages of four and six. Well, that's crazy because if he was between the age of four and six and able to fit in a bassinet box, they're specifically designed for infants who are usually transferred around the three to six month mark into a crib. And it just, that is just astounding. I don't know. It's so sad. Yeah. And um, a little bit later on, I noted here that um, in the autopsy, they determined that he likely looked or had the body of like a two-year-old so yeah that i mean when you're malnourished enough that you look four years younger and you're a child that's some serious neglect yeah yeah um now his nails were cut very neatly and like i said earlier some reports did say that his hair was also cut neatly um but it kind of showed that there was some element of being taken care of, um, which just doesn't line up for me. But police did also take fingerprints from the child and they publicly released the death photo in order to hopefully bring new leads, but nothing ever came of it. So I did then try to find some information from the autopsy and I couldn't find the actual autopsy report, but I was able to find a lot of information that came from it. First and foremost, it was determined that he died from blunt force trauma to the head. There were four large hits to his forehead. He also had evidence of cerebral hemorrhaging. And like I mentioned earlier, his age put him between four and six, but based on his height and weight, he had the body of a two year old. Um, the x-rays also showed signs of arrested growth, which means, according to my BFF Google, because I don't know these things, that his growth plates had severe damage, uh, potentially from possible fractures, which he did have surgical scars, so it's possible that he had fractured something at some point and it was corrected. Um, it could come from infections or developmental issues among a handful of other causes. There were also findings pointing to a recent eye infection, which had been treated with medication. So he was abused and malnourished, but money was spent to treat his eye infection. And then I'm also thinking about the neatly trimmed fingernails. Maybe his abuser was like a germaphobe or something. Well, then I think that was it a possibility that he had a type of disease that um, created maybe brittle bones uh, that stunned him, that maybe the parents did try to care for him, but it was too hard, or maybe he did have a disorder that frustrated them. I have no idea. I mean, especially back then, people couldn't... Re- there wasn't really help for that. They were either put in uh, institutions or families were ashamed by them, wanted to hide them which is super sad also. Yeah. And I think the other thing that kind of throws me off is, so he's abused and malnourished and he's so small, but if he was getting medication, they would have had to take him to a doctor and wouldn't any of this kind of throw red flags to a doctor. So, I mean, I wonder if maybe somebody else in the family had had an infection at some point and they had, you know, penicillin at home because penicillin fixed everything. And maybe they just gave him some of that so they wouldn't have to take him to the doctor. Um, That's a good point. I mean, total speculation. Maybe his abuser was a doctor and he had surgery scars, too. So that's even more medical attention. Yeah. That someone should have noticed something. I actually agree with Chelsea. And and further down, when we get into it, I actually did write something about that being, you know, when you have a kid with special needs or have some kind of thing and some of the diseases and stuff that has, like, was prominent in that time frame could have led to 
him not eating and the vomiting and all of that and if they all contributed to it. Because I feel like it's it's super weird to have your fingernails cleaned and eye medication, but then have all of these injuries. Well, and the other thing I was thinking with the clean fingernails, um, or at least the recently cut fingernails, is, I mean, if there was any sort of fear that maybe something from under the child's fingernails could point back to anything. Now, I mean, forensics was not in the 50s what it is today by any stretch, but I mean, you could still figure a lot out from some of those clues so that I wonder, could that possibly be a part of it as well? Um, Maybe that kind of leads to the idea of a doctor too, who had some sort of knowledge about what maybe could be found under well, your if you think, Well, if you think about it, if you're that malnourished, there is no way that you're fighting back. That's so true. I can't even imagine there being any type of, I don't know, skin or hair or anything. I mean, that child was probably so weak it could not do a lot. Do you think his fingernails were trimmed or just not growing? Because when you are malnourished like that and you probably have a lot of um, deficiencies. Like, I don't know. I'm just thinking maybe his nails weren't even growing. That's possible too. Yeah. I don't know about any of that, but it, I mean, I could see it being possible. Um, Well, I know when there's deficiencies, they still grow, but you get it like does skips and stuff in the nail, but it mm -hmm. still does grow. I've heard. Gotcha. So maybe even just they were weak nails and they were kind of broken. I mean, I there are times where I'll break a nail and it'll break clean down like to the skin and it won't it'll look like it was cut. You know what I mean? So yeah, there's there's kind of a lot to digest because the pieces don't make sense together. Um, and it just kind of gets more and more crazy the further we go. Um, the autopsy report also said that he had baked beans in his stomach from roughly two to three hours before his death and that his esophagus had a dark brown residue, which could point to the fact that he had vomited shortly before his death. Which would make sense if he had head trauma because typically, like, if you have a concussion or a head... Um, head injury, you tend to vomit. It's would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. That would definitely make sense. Um, now it was a little bit hard for them to nail down a specific death date, uh, because of the weather in Philly in February, the Emmy said he couldn't determine if this boy had been dead for two to three days or two to three weeks. Um, he definitely wasn't in the field for like six months, but you know, it was really basically impossible, especially with the technology in the fifties to figure out exactly when he took his final breath. Um, now, a lot of these details are going to come back into play when we start rolling through those theories, but I do think it's interesting that he had this small stature from the arrested growth and was found so bruised. Um, and my, I know I say this almost every episode, but my heart just absolutely breaks. I have to wonder if part of why he wasn't identified was because the report did show him as a four to six year old. And many people who might've seen him might've only recognized him as a two year old. Like if he was playing in the yard, but he was really small, maybe he wouldn't have been recognized as a four to six year old. That's a good thought. So Philly authorities did create a poster with a visual representation of the boy, along with details related to his physical appearance in order to try to get some tips. Over 400,000 copies of this poster were distributed across the city and the gas company actually even included flyers in every single gas bill that was sent to residents in Philly. With all of this publicity, there still were not any tips rolling in, and he still was not identified after all of this. Can I just say that it's pretty amazing that the gas company would put the photo in the bills. Like, that's just incredible and clever to think to do something like that. 
Oh yeah. I think it's, I think it's awesome. Um, and you know, we hear a lot about like the milk carton kids and I don't remember if I said this or if I was talking to another friend, um, but I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago and they said, you know, the milk carton kids and the cereal box kids, you know, like when I was a kid, I looked at it, but my parents didn't look at it. So, you know, something where it's actually aimed towards adults, I think was a, a really good thought. It's unfortunate, of course, that it didn't lead to any tips, but really a good idea, I think. Um now, in 1988, they did exhume the body, and when the body was exhumed, they collected DNA from his remains, and I believe they specifically pulled it from his teeth. Um, when he was exhumed, he had been in a potter's field burial plot, but when they reburied him, he was moved to Ivy Hill Cemetery and buried in a donated casket. He was also given a new headstone that has a little lamb sitting on it, and it reads, America's Unknown Child. Along with the new headstone, the original marker from the Potter's Field grave was also moved. The original marker read, quote, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy, unquote. And it also has the date he was discovered, which was February 25th, 1957. So now get ready to digest some theories. Um, there's a lot of thoughts here and I kind of broke these down into two categories. There's some theories that have been debunked, but are kind of interesting and worth talking about. And then there are still active theories that are um, ongoing right now. So we're going to start with the debunked theories to kind of go through them, get them out of the way. And then we'll take a look at some of the active theories. So the first theory is that he was the son of carnival workers. And there were actually two carnival workers, Kenneth and Irene Dudley, who were parents to 10 different children. Um, Kenneth and Irene came into thought when one of their daughters died at age seven as a result of neglect, malnutrition, and exposure. After her death, she was buried wrapped in a blanket in a wooded area of Virginia. So, so far we've We've got some similarities. Um, it was actually eventually discovered that seven of the 10 children in the family had died of similar circumstances. As part of the carnival, the family traveled as a whole up and down the East Coast while Kenneth looked for new work. Due to the similarities between the cases of their children and the boy in the box, the family was questioned in relation to this case. It was determined that they were not responsible for his death. However, they were still really neglectful parents. I mean, if seven of your 10 kids die from neglect and malnutrition, you kind of suck. So... So this is a total side note, but just kind of a funny thing. Um, so we have a carnival. We had a carnival every year at the end of summer where I grew up and the workers were all like really sketchy people. But my one friend decided to date the balloon dart guy for like three weeks. And by, and by date, I mean like they hung out a lot that week and then they switched to texting and phone calls because obviously FaceTime and Facebook weren't really around back then. Um, it didn't work out because he traveled, but he was very interesting. Like the whole, that whole world is very interesting. Oh yeah. There's probably perks to dating the balloon dart guy, like teddy bears, prizes. free <laughs> prizes, like a poorly made, like elephant with like uneven eyes. <laughs> Whatever you yeah, would win from a carnival. To, I think in her phone, it was actually labeled carnival guy or like carny. It was just totally random. That's I, fantastic. I just, like, <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I mean, it, it speaks to, you know, if they, if this family was, you know, killing kids, they could pretty much leave them anywhere and be in a different city in a week. So, um, it was definitely a, a, a good lead. It just didn't pan out. Um, so that takes us into theory number two. Theory number two is that he was a Hungarian refugee. This one comes from fingerprint expert Bill Kelly, who felt that this boy may have been a part of the refugees who came to the States from Hungary in the 50s based on a photo that he saw in the newspaper. 
So when he looked at this photo in the newspaper, Kelly thought that one of the boys had to be the boy that was found in the box. There were enough facial similarities in his opinion had to be this kid. So they started checking all of the passports of the refugees and they ended up finding the boy who actually was in the photo, the one that Kelly thought was the boy in the box and he was located and safe. And so that theory was also debunked. And that takes us into then theory number three. This is the last of our debunked theories. And this is that he was a boy who had actually been kidnapped two years prior. So on Halloween night, 1955, Stephen Craig Damon who was two at the time, was kidnapped in East Meadow, New York. Stephen and the boy had similar features, including their complexion and their hair color. When they compared Stephen's previous known injuries, including two breaks in his arm, the evidence didn't fit with the boy in the box. They also compared the footprints and the footprints did not match. They were also able to test DNA, which showed no similarities, or maybe it might have shown a couple hits, but nothing that could definitively connect them. Um, and it was eventually debunked as well. Do you know if they ever found Stephen? I don't think so. Um, because I believe when I was finding information on him, I believe it was on like a New York cold cases list. Um, Google to the mm -hmm. rescue. The Charlie project says he's still missing. Okay. Oh, poor baby. Yeah. He'd be 68 right now. <laughs> poor old man. <laughs> um, yeah. So obviously they never found him, but it was debunked that they could not be the same boy. So now we're going to move into some of the active theories. Um, the first theory we're going to look at in this section has some parts that are still actively considered, but other elements that have been debunked. So this is kind of a midway uh, theory. It does seem to be a crowd favorite, though. I mean, not obviously not like, yay, a dead child was found, but just a a theory that a lot of people tend to believe. Um, so this theory says that he was killed accidentally in a foster home situation. And it's thought that he either fell out of a high window or drowned in a lake. Now, wouldn't that kind of be easy to debunk uh, whether he drowned I, when they did his autopsy, wouldn't they find water in the lungs? Yeah. So that's part of it that was uh, debunked. So they still kind of cling to this idea that it's possible that he fell, but because in the autopsy, they didn't find any water in his lungs. That part definitely was debunked. Um, now the medical examiner, Remington Bristow spoke with a psychic who stated that she felt the child had been in the care of a foster family who would have renovated an old mansion into a foster home. So getting kind of specific here. Um, following that lead, there is one specific family that Bristow began to suspect. And this is where um, the family that he suspected ends up being debunked, but kind of the general thought of what came from this psychic is still held by some investigators as plausible. So there was, in fact, a foster family in the area who lived in a renovated mansion. Bristow eventually grew to question whether or not this may have been the illegitimate child of the daughter of the foster family. So foster mom and dad had a child, and the thought is that this young boy was the... Um, the illegitimate child of that daughter. Um, so Bristow went into this foster home and he saw a bassinet that would match the description of the box that the boy was found in. So at first that feels kind of incriminating, like, Oh, you've got this product in your house, but we found, you know, a box that would fit this product. And now the child's in it. Okay, but, like, if we went after everyone that had a crib in their house today, 
it would be anybody with a young child. Or if, you know, you went for like a pack and play, you found a pack and play box and then, you know, went everywhere that had a pack and play. I mean, it would be anybody with any children, nieces, nephews, grandkids, just you know, your own kids, anything like that. Um, I mean, now today we do have a lot of different types of cribs and whatnot, but there weren't hundreds of different bassinet designs in the fifties. They were all fairly standard. It would just be a difference of like paint color or, you know, maybe the manufacturer or, you know, whatever. Um, they couldn't exactly just go to an Amazon review and see what a box looked like or what a product inside a box would look like. So um, I don't know that this detail is as important as it was made to seem initially, but I mean, we do know that there was a bassinet in the home. I'm pretty sure they all contained lead paint. Yeah, probably. It was the 50s. Would you like your crib leaded or unleaded? <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. Um so anyway, Bristow is thinking that these Foster's parents have this illegitimate grandchild and that he died either accidentally or maliciously, and they used that box to cover it up so they wouldn't be found out either for murder or illegitimate children in the family. Um, and at first, again, it, it kind of seems like you can jive with this theory, like, yeah, it kind of makes sense, the pieces fit, but when the lead was followed up on, the daughter of the foster parents, who is suspected to have been the mother of the boy in the box, um, did admit that she had a child and that he did die in an accident in 1957, but that the forensics didn't match. Um, those are the words straight from the article that I read. It, they just said the forensics didn't match, so I'm not sure what exactly they were comparing, but whatever they compared did not match. Um, anyway, so we were able to debunk that part of it. Um, so there's kind of a lot going on there, but basically there's this idea that some foster family could be involved and specifically this one foster family was ruled out but there is still kind of that overarching idea of there might still be some sort of foster family situation involved. Um, and that's not me at all saying that foster families are going to kill the children. That is just this theory. Um, then we go into the first and really only major tip that has come to the case. So the fifth theory here is Martha's tip. Um, there was a woman identified as quote unquote, Martha, no last name. And the name always appears in quotation marks. So we're not sure if it truly is her name. Um, she's also identified as simply M at some, in some sources. Um, but I did find a couple that used the full name Martha. So she came forward in 2004 with information that she felt may help lead to a resolution. She said that in 1954, her abusive mother had bought a young boy. Hold on. Like, cash money went to a store and picked out a baby? Mine is... I mean, it sounds fucked up, but it does happen. Some women just really want a baby. Minus the store part, but basically, yeah. Like, she... Like, I'm going baby shopping. Went, Let me... Who does that? She knew she knew some guy and apparently just like guy wanted to get rid of the kid. She wanted the kid. So, yeah, apparently that that's according to this um, anonymous. Well, Martha tip. Her mother told her that the boy's name was Jonathan and Martha was abused and sexually assaulted by her mother, and she was made to believe that this was also Jonathan's purpose in the house as well. Allegedly, her mother constantly beat and sexually assaulted this boy. Martha tells a story that one night he threw up baked beans and that her mom beat him and threw him against the floor. Soon thereafter, he was given a bath in which he died. So I did find two different versions of this story. One is what I just said, where he threw up and then was given the bath. And the other said that he threw up in the bath and then was slammed into the bathtub and like the sides of the tub and whatnot. Um, 
regardless of which story is correct, remember that in the autopsy, they did say there were baked beans in his stomach and um, that lining in his esophagus that showed he may have vomited before he died. So that part does kind of seem to line up, but I don't know how much of this information was public in the 50s, so I'm not sure... Um, or, well, I guess by 2004, most of this, when she came forward, most of this was known. So it could have been made up, um, just made to fit the scenario, or it could be legit, but police were never able to actually verify the story. So this sounds kind of horrible, but like the Emmy said that he died from blunt force trauma to the forehead. You would have to hit like. I'm just trying to imagine, and I don't really want to imagine it, but, like, you would have to hit somebody's head pretty hard. Even the fact that he's two. I mean, kids are kind of resilient. And it just, I just can't, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, and it's too hard. Do we know where Mother of the Year is now? Dead, probably. Yeah, 50-something. Yeah, she probably is dead. Yeah, um, we, we also don't know, because Martha is we're assuming just some sort of pseudonym. Um, so we don't really know who she is. We don't know who this mother is or was. So we really don't know any further information about that family. So now we move into theory number six. And this is the theory that he was actually being raised as a girl instead of a boy. So initially I was going to hold this one for last because it's really interesting to me, but I wanted to throw the idea out now. Just, I don't know, because it's just, it blows my mind. So remember we talked earlier about the fact that the haircut was going to come back in some of these theories. So the reason, according to this theory, that he had a freshly shaved head and the reason it's been so difficult to identify him is actually because he always had long hair and was raised as a girl. Uh, one artist, Frank Bender, created a visual rendition of the girl in the box that began circulating alongside the original rendition that was posted. Bender also stated that there was evidence of plucked eyebrows, which may have been a sign that someone was trying to create a more feminine look on the child's face. That's so fucked up either way. Like, he was a small child. I can't imagine his eyebrows were getting out of control. Like... Eugene Levy style. I mean, even if he was like a four-year-old girl who has like, a four-year-old girl has like arched eyebrows. Like, that's so weird. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is maybe just a family upset they got a boy and not a girl. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, and honestly, I kind of love this theory in the not loving that... Uh, child is unidentified but um because the the tactic is so psychologically interesting to me in a world where someone would do anything to conceal abuse of a child it makes sense that they would think to alter the perceived gender you know if you have worries about this girl in your neighborhood that's being abused and she disappears but 6 months later or however much longer a four-year-old boy is found, it's not going to throw red flags up in your mind. Um, now, of course, the one thing I do want to throw out here is we don't know whether the child was choosing to represent himself in a more feminine way um, or if it was chosen for the child. We don't even know if it's true at all. Um, you know, it's it's a theory, like everything we talk about, totally a theory. We also, since we don't know if it was the choice of the child, we'll continue to refer to him as he based on the biological uh, gender and the moniker boy in the box. Um, my thought is if he's as, as abused and malnourished as he was, if he did not want to be a boy, the odds of the family accepting that are probably pretty slim, just with as much as he was already abused. Um, so we will continue to refer to him as a boy, even though this theory is out there. 
You said that the chunks of hair found on the body um, that had fallen after it was cut. Do we know, like, the length? If it was long or, like, short little pieces, it might give us a better idea on whether the theory is possible. I'm I'm going off of assumption here just based on the fact that the hair was sticking to his skin, that it wouldn't have been, you know, super long chunks of hair. I'm thinking of, like, when I cut my husband's hair and, you know, the hair kind of falls and gets stuck, like, on his shoulders or on the back of his neck or, you know, something like that. Um, I mean, when my hair falls out just because I have thick hair and I shed like a dog, apparently, you know, it doesn't stick to my skin. It'll stick to my clothes. It, you know, sticks everywhere else in the house. But, you know, my long hair doesn't stick on my skin. But when it's those shorter clippings of, you know, cutting my husband's hair, it'll stick more. So there was no definitive answer to that question that I could find, but just kind of going off of experience and assumption, I would say they were shorter pieces that were able to stick to the body. And I guess we also can't really rule out that maybe they shaved his head so that he would wear a wig to throw people off, like keeping it short so that you could wear a wig. Yeah, that's true too. Absolutely. So yeah, that, that theory just interests me so much. And we will have that visual rendition available on the blog for this episode too, so that you can take a look at it. Um, moving on to the next theory. This is another one with Mr. Bristow, the Emmy. Um, like we mentioned in theory number four, he suspected either a high fall from a window or, you know, we had said that lake drowning kind of before it was ruled out that there wasn't any water in the lungs. Um, the bottoms of his feet and the palm of one hand had wrinkles on them. And that's where this idea of some water may come from. But according to reports, they weren't able to determine if he had been in water or not. And because the cause of death is listed as blood force blunt force trauma to the head, not drowning, um, we can, you know, kind of throw out the the drowning part. In addition to, you know, seeing that possibility of water on the feet and the hand, uh, his hair was also clumped and stuck to his body, which kind of goes back to Amanda, the question that you had asked um, with the hair um, and how it was cut the length of the clippings. Um, but it seems like it was clumped and stuck to his body in places, which they suspect could mean he was either in water or wet when he died or when he was left in the box in the field. I think we need to consider too that, I mean, we don't know how long he was outside and it could have, we could have rain. I mean, it could have rained and like yeah. stuck it together, stuck it to his body. That's true. Or maybe they tried washing him down to get rid of evidence. Or I've heard of a story where, there was a serial killer who was killing kids and he would wash them down and clean them for some strange reason. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely possible too. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's something we definitely think of now in 2021. I don't know if in the fifties they were worried as much about like touch DNA, but they definitely would have been thinking about like making sure that anything that could connect back to whoever killed him would be removed. So fingerprints maybe. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but definitely I think it makes more sense to think of there being, um, rain or a bath or cleaning up of something than for him to have been in a lake. If the only signs of water are, you know, like wet feet and a hand, um, but that is just kind of another theory that they haven't been able to fully debunk yet. So it is still part of what they consider, or at least the evidence is part of what they still consider. Um, now, the next theory is where else the haircut fits in. So we have that theory that maybe he was a girl or he was being um, portrayed as a girl. And so his hair was cut. Um but this other theory is that someone was cutting his hair and pushed too hard and that it caused a cerebral bleed because they did mention uh, cerebral hemorrhaging in the uh, autopsy report. Um, now, this was 
kind of debunked because a man came forward claiming to have cut the boy's hair a week before and stated that the boy and an older brother left the barbershop together, healthy and unharmed. Um, but I don't know. That doesn't line up with, with some of the other things that we've talked about so far. Yeah, I have multiple questions. Like the first one, like, wasn't the haircut very haphazard? Like, was he a drunk barber? <laughs> I um, mean, maybe, you know, there's, it's possible. There's also the fact that this seems to be the only guy, if I'm not mistaken, that claimed to have seen him when he was alive and attached him to an older brother. It kind of could give us some timing because if it was a week before, and then also he still had like hair clippings stuck to him. Then he probably wasn't killed too long after. Like there's just a, there's a lot here. Yeah. So this one definitely, it, it yeah, it doesn't line up for me. Um, and I, I probably should have put this one up in the debunked theories instead of the, um, active theories. Um, it, it doesn't make sense that you would have these hair clippings um, and that someone would say, oh, yeah, I saw him with a brother and then nothing else comes of it. And I also feel like if he's cutting the hair, pushes too hard, causes some sort of bleed. I mean, like I said before, I cut my husband's hair and his hair is thick. And sometimes I really have to push to get, we just need to get new clippers. We're just cheap. So there are times where I really have to push. I have never given him a concussion or drawn blood or, you know, and I know there are safety clips now so that that doesn't happen, but it, there weren't like scabs or scars. And if someone is cutting, you're not going to have four instances of blunt force trauma on the forehead from someone cutting your hair. So, um, I did only see this in one place. It wasn't Reddit, but it was, you know, just only one source had this theory. The source so, was drunk. Um, apparently that's, had this person recently watched Sweeney Todd? <laughs> Were they maybe feeling like really imaginative? Yeah, I, yeah, I, is, I don't know. Is anything close to being serious? Yeah. Um, this one definitely should have been up in the debunked um, section, but that's okay. Um, now, the next one kind of connects back to the other case or the other theory that we talked about a bit ago that someone was trying to sell their son. So, you know, quote unquote, Martha's mom supposedly bought this child. And now we're looking at a theory where it says that someone was trying to sell his son. Um, so this theory comes from a landlord in Philly who rented a place to a man. And this man said that he was looking to sell his son. First of all, if I was renting a room to someone and they told me I want to sell my son, I would take the key back. Um, I don't, I don't know, obviously no, the full situation, you. but it did seems a little sketch there. Um, so the man who said he was looking to sell his son also has another biological son. Forensic pathologists compared this man's face and his other son's face. So what would be, you know, the boy in the box's brother to the boy in the box. So they, you know, looked at the facial structure compared them to see if it was even worth kind of going into anymore. They did find some facial similarities within the facial structure, the helix of the right ear and the nose. They did take the brother's DNA and they didn't say whether or not they would compare the DNA samples. Their only comment was that they would continue to investigate it further. So was this fairly recent or was this closer to when he was exhumed in 88? I want to say it was in the 90s or early aughts. Um, I can double check for the exact year, um, but it was at least 20 years ago. Um, Oh, so there really hasn't been any follow-up, no. so there was probably nothing really to it. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Um, 
either that or it's a long time coming sort of match, mm-hmm. um, which we'll kind of get into in just a little bit. Um, now, whether one of these theories gives us the answer or not, investigators are not giving up. There's actually been some recent advances in the case that should sound familiar to us at this point between cases we've already covered and just kind of the news of true crime if you keep up with uh, different happenings. So DNA that was collected from the remains during the exhumation were sent off to a company in Europe and a full family profile was created from that DNA. This is a similar type of opportunity that helped to solve the Beth Doe case that we've talked about um, where they were able to identify Evelyn Colon. And it was also similar to the genealogical DNA that was used to um, get the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, uh, behind bars and to a conviction. So Barbara Ray Venter, who is actually one of the investigators that helped to connect the DNA from GSK to Joseph James D'Angelo, has actually been working with the DNA that we have from the boy in the box in hopes of finding a relative to whom we can finally connect an identity for this boy. And that's where I say, you know, maybe some of that DNA that they took from this supposed man that wanted to sell the son and what could be the biological brother. Um, I wonder if maybe this is where some of that might be coming back in and it just isn't fully developed yet, which is why we don't have any more details. Um, but that's just totally guessing on my part. I have a lot of hope for this one because you mentioned how the resolution to Evelyn Colin's case was similar and she wasn't even reported missing or anything. And thanks to that modern technology, they were able to identify her and her murderer. And that was from the seventies. So is it basically a waiting game for this extended family to have their DNA tested for sites like Ancestry? Or jail time for there to be a match? So the way that it has worked in previous cases was just, you know, people like in Evelyn Cologne's, um, it was her cousin or her brother that had given DNA and they were able to make the match through familial DNA that way. For a Golden State Killer, I believe it was like a three like a third cousin twice removed or, you know, it was something obscure, but close enough that they were able to make that connection. And a lot of what's coming into these genealogical DNA databases is coming from people opting into providing that DNA whenever they do, you know, like family tree or ancestry or anything where they test their own DNA and get the results. Um, Most of them have that option now that you can enter it into a database. So I think at this point, the hope is just that somebody somewhere is going to opt into that. Or, you know, like you mentioned jail time, it's possible that someone would be arrested and the DNA would would match. Um, But I think at this point, it's just kind of a waiting game as far as I know. So it's funny that you mentioned that we went to Disney about two or three years ago and you had to do fingerprints. And while we were waiting in line to set up these fingerprints, I was like, so many people are passing through here right now, giving their fingerprints willingly, like connection, like hook up and do some work or something. I don't know. It just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. There, Everything was fingerprint. You couldn't get him without fingerprint. Um, another, so I, I've said it before. I'm super obsessed with the cold justice show, but, um, Yolanda McClary, which is like one of the CSIs, she is the girl that, um, the redhead Kathleen, Catherine can't talk Willows is based on for CSI Las Vegas. So she just started a show um, called the Jane Doe murders on the oxygen station. And it kind of goes into that. They use the genealogy to find the actual like identity. And from what I gathered, she was part of the Beth Doe case. So if you are more interested in that, they kind of break it down on how they like backwards chain it to find the the real identity. 
That's so interesting. I like listening to um, a lot of listening to watching, reading, whatever, a lot of stuff from GSK and, you know, mainly listening to what Paul Holes has to say about it because he was so involved with kind of nailing GSK. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to listen to, and it really helps you kind of understand the process. Um, but as far as actually getting DNA in, I think if you ever get the opportunity to provide DNA, do it. Um, I mean, unless you plan on committing murders and don't want your own DNA connected to something, but I would like to think that all of our listeners are choosing not to murder people. Um, but it is my conspiracy theorist husband would be cringing if he listened to this podcast. Yeah. Well, my mom, my dad, my husband, um, my mom's super into genealogy and she works a lot with, um, a lady in California who works on finding kids that were adopted, like their real parents and using that DNA to find things. So it's, it's really neat to see. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a really cool process. And I have a lot of hope for the future of DNA and genealogy and, and kind of figuring all of that stuff out. Yeah. So I had a thought going back to boy in the box. Um, what if he was sick, like cancer or some kind of illness that would cause brittle bones, like Chelsea said earlier, and maybe he like stopped eating. It wasn't like he was malnourished on purpose. Um, that would kind of account for the healed fractures and the low weight. And if you think a fall would be consistent with the head trauma that he sustained, it could have been like he was getting into the tub to wash the hair off or he fell in the bathtub and maybe hit his head on like the faucet. I know like when my kid was a baby, we had the little covers for the faucet so they couldn't hit their head on it. And maybe like the parent panicked and placed him in the box and put him somewhere to be found because I mean, for him to be in a box makes me think that the person cared or had some kind of remorse. If it was just like, I'm going to kill my kid, I feel like there'd be a little less mercy in the placement of them. And I, of course, did a little research on like illnesses that were around during that period, which would be like scarlet fever, typhoid fever, measles, diphtheria. And I mean, most of the illnesses that I mentioned are accompanied with a rash or blisters, but it could have been like additional complications that he had after that. Um, so this, and it, it kind of, my brain goes back to what we talked about earlier. If he had some sort of serious illness and was under the care of a doctor, wouldn't it be easier for the doctor to then say like, Oh, I haven't seen this patient or, you know, like, oh, this boy was really sick. And now, you know, I i mean, obviously, I don't know what it was like in the 50s and what doctor patient relationships looked like, or if doctors called patients to follow up on things or, you know, anything like that. But I have to wonder if there was something this severe that would be consistent with why his body could be so small and appear so malnourished. I feel like there would be some sort of record of this child existing and then not existing. I think it's definitely possible that there was some sort of illness. Um, I also think that, and this is just morbid, um, but this is where my brain went, that maybe he was put in the box so he wouldn't be discovered as soon so that maybe he would go further into different stages of decomp and be less and less and less recognizable, which I hate that thought. But I mean, I don't, I don't know that it was necessarily someone that cared. I think it could be someone that definitely had remorse Kind of like you see, like if someone's face is covered or, you know, anything like that, it usually shows that sort of remorse or connection. Um, but yeah, definitely some sort of illness or, you know, just trying to kind of get away with something. I don't know. I think that can, can make sense. Now, I was also thinking, wouldn't they be able to rule that out in an autopsy? But after thinking about that, I have a friend who has a daughter with, uh, 
a disorder and there's only like 50 other documented cases that have been done and only like a couple dozen that are actually living today. And it's like so rare and so little's known about it. So especially back yeah. then, it Maybe probably it wouldn't wasn't be recognized. recognizable. Yeah. Or yeah. like if they traveled somewhere to see a doctor, like in a different area, I know like we travel almost an hour to go to a specialist. So maybe it was just kind of like the doctor didn't realize because they were an hour away and they didn't really know. That's true. Or didn't follow up. And it was more well, of like a mercy kill kind of thing. Like they were suffering and he, they just decided to beat him in the bathtub. I don't. I don't know. Well, back in those days, doctors did not do follow-ups. They didn't see if you were seeing multiple doctors. They didn't check to see if you had multiple prescriptions. They did not do that kind of checking at all. That's true. So if you lived an hour away and went to a specialist, you know, it would be easy. I mean, how far were they from a major city? Um. Well, since we don't know... Obviously, who it is, we don't know exactly how far the family would be, but he was found in Fox Chase, which is right outside of Philly. So, easy access to Philly, a couple hours from New York City, a couple hours from Pittsburgh, Baltimore. Like John Hopkins, yeah. 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 So, it makes sense, too. The, uh, the idea of a mercy kill just kind of takes me back to, like, Babes in the Woods, too, because that's a big part of what we talked about there, that it's heartbreaking, but... There are a lot of really great podcasts that dive even deeper into this shows and videos. If you look it up on YouTube, you can fall into a rabbit hole very quickly. Um, there are books written about the case. There is one that I started reading. I haven't finished it yet, but it's a fictionalized account of it. But they actually talk to the investigators that were there the day of and then kind of fictionalized pieces of it. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting and I'm totally blanking on the title of it, but we will put it in the blog. We will make sure to have that book title in there. Um, but like I said, there's a lot you can go into and dive deeper into. There's a lot more theories that are out there. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.